No, Bridge, you've got great legs. Climber's legs. Welcome back to Season 2 of Takes of Our Lives. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 3, the one in which we discuss the second in the Bridget Jones Diary trilogy of motion pictures, Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason. I'm Vince Coaching. I'm joined by Steve Wilk, my friend. How are you? I'm good, man. I have been teetering on the edge of reason myself since we watched <laughs> this movie in the summer of 2016. Um, so yeah, I'm oh. excited we finally get to talk about it properly oh yes yeah it was actually around the same time of year because uh, a certain reoccurring civic event was going on uh in the in the near future so it's actually almost four years to the day well actually not to correct you but i think it was over the summer because it was uh for natalie's wedding when we watched oh the movie. of course of course we but yeah the, we did do a fair bit of talking about the election at the time for sure it was on everyone's mind as it is at this moment i'm sure as well how young and naive i was um all that said we have much uh i don't know if it was it's necessarily lighter fair to discuss today <laughs> but it will be more entertaining i hope um and we're of course as i already mentioned steve talking about the sequel to the movie that we talked about last week Bridget Jones' Diary. Yep. So Bridget Jones, uh, The Edge of Reason is the 2004 sequel to Bridget Jones' Diary. It is directed by someone named Biban Kidron. I'm I looked sure up I'm Beban. butchering that. <laughs> Biban. <laughs> Biban, yeah. Her only other credit of note is the BBC's 2000 uh, Cinderella. Oh, okay. That one uh, did not cross my transom, but maybe I'll check it out at some point. How did you pronounce her first name? Beben. Beben. How, do you have any guesses on this last name? Uh, Kidron? Kidron. Okay. I like that. Beben Kidron. Uh, Hopefully her estate can write us and correct us. <laughs> I digress. Uh, so this movie is directed by Beben Kidron and stars Renee Zellweger in a reprisal of her role as the titular character. Uh, we pick up without too much time lapsing between the first and second movie. Uh, Bridget and Mark Darcy have been dating for a scant six weeks when mm. seeds of doubt about the strength of their relationship are planted by the presence of a new character named Rebecca, uh, who is a colleague of Mark's and at some point mentioned that she's heir to half of Australia. Did you catch that part? <laughs> no, no, that escaped my notes. That's weird. Okay, yeah, strange. I think the point they were trying to drive home is that she comes from money. So, um, but there we are. I mean, that's kind of where we're starting from. Obviously, we're going to, you know, dig into the particulars as we go along, but their, you know, young relationship is already on the rocks, Bridget and Mark. Yes, it hasn't taken long at all. A little bit about the film to anyone who's, who's wondering. I know the boilerplate IMDb stuff is what most people tune into to listen. Uh, <laughs> Just the stats. Though a very close, both time-wise and and spiritually successor to the original, uh, it was released three years later, in 2004, and upon its release, not really as well-received at all, 
as the cultural classic of the original Bridget Jones Diary, panned by fans, scorched by critics, mm. only only uh, boasts a 24% score on Rotten Tomatoes, though a much more robust 6.0 even on IMDb. Uh, it did end up being a modest commercial success with the return of about $260 million, though it should be noted it did produce for twice the cost of the original. Um, before we get into our own rewatch reaction, it is important to note that this is a pretty big dichotomy between the way the films are remembered in pop culture. Uh, the first, as we've mentioned at length, sort of a darling of the genre that persists into relevance today. This one, not so much. Where to begin? I guess, so last episode I mentioned that our watch of the first movie was kind of after a night out and uh, kind of had a similar high energy excitement to it. Our watch of uh, Edge of Reason was much more of a dazed afternoon hangover nap vibe, <laughs> um, which kind of, I would say, contributes to how we remember the movie. Uh, but, you know, spirits are still high, but the energy is lower. The level of engagement of you know various people in the room is hard to synchronize. I think at some point Sarah fell asleep. Uh, you and I were pretty engaged the entire time, but I do um, think our, our 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 ailments from the previous evening added an extra barb or two to the whips that we were raining down. Absolutely, on the film. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, our physical state had something to do with uh, our <laughs> attitude towards the, the the thing. You know, on the whole, but I think that. Edge of Reason is kind of the underlying reason why we are doing the whole Bridget Jones mini season on Takes of Our Lives. <laughs> our yes. experience watching that movie the first time is kind of what led to this moment right now. I think that's fair. I think um, it was a very sort of peanut gallery-like experience where we were definitely lighting a fire under one another as we were over and over again doubled and redoubled in our surprise at what we were seeing on the screen and i i think it it in a way sort of fueled our movie watching tradition um our ritual of watching a very particular kind of movie and then yeah exactly that sort of bloomed into our shared love of talking about media and so thank you thank you helen fielding and beeb and kidron for <laughs> lending us this gift also, I was thinking about like you know we we probably don't uh, you know go out as like a foursome to go see the third movie in the theater because that we, we haven't really talked much about the third movie yet, uh, which we'll get to in our next episode. But that was released like in 2016 uh, or or very early 2017. I can't remember exactly when, but you know we had such a good time watching these movies over that uh, wedding weekend that we were like, well, we got to go see the third one when it comes out. Um, and then so that's kind of where you know this all. It all culminates in this podcast here, but you know all that's to say that you know this it it did made it made an impact for better and definitely for worse as we're going to get into. <laughs> um, Steve, but, uh, let me ask you a broad question: How much of your original viewing on that fateful afternoon, heads pounding, water being sipped, do you remember? Um, I mostly remember the outrage. I didn't remember a ton of um, actual like story beats. I yeah. do. I remember the vibe more than the actual movie itself. Um, I think I mentioned last episode that like that the fight part two, uh, which happens in the 
the um the fountain there you know i had mistaken the original fight for that but other than that i mean obviously there's the thai prison which we're going to get into um <laughs> yeah. but it all was kind of a jumble in my head you know there wasn't yeah. there wasn't like specific things that stuck out as we kind of transition to the rewatch reaction i wanted to ask you all jokes aside what was your frame of mind going into this watch like were you guns blazing like anxious to flame it or did you like want to give it the possibility of not being as bad as you remember no, it, it had no benefit of any doubts. I was sharpening my knife from the very <laughs> beginning. I actually think that uh, contributed somewhat to the opinion that I landed upon uh, upon rewatching it. But to answer your question in as few as words as possible, I was ready to give it what fur. I had a okay. full ammo belt ready. See, I want. I kind of went into it. I mean, that I knew that we were gonna flame it either way. I was kind of. I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt, come at it with as fresh eyes as possible, largely just because I enjoyed the first movie and the book, and I was kind of excited to spend more time with these characters. Um, but I also just thought it would make for like a better point of view. Um, I guess we'll see as this kind of goes on. But uh, <laughs> my journalistic integrity was checked at the door. <laughs> I was ready. I had my opinion for him. But I, I think as you'll see, and maybe this is the first point I'll bring up is the in the, in the proper reaction here. It, it softened a bit. I will say if I was coming in expecting it to be like a two, not to not to really make this granular on a numeric scale, because I don't I don't think that really holds up, especially with a movie like this. But it, it was it was more genuinely fun than ironically fun than I was expecting. It was still mostly ironically fun in that I was savoring the confusing decisions that the film made and some of the like outrageous gaffery that was on display. But I will say, in an effort to be fair and honest, the first half of the movie felt like a pretty authentic sequel to the original. Absolutely. The first half is much more staid than the second half. The second half is when it just fully goes off the rail. And I mean, there are a few. My big reaction to this was obviously of the huge, like broad, obvious slapstick moments. And some of that stuff, like I did remember as I was watching it. And that, like, I think I had mentioned the last one too, that the this movie kind of goes overboard with that kind of stuff. These people cease to become they cease to feel like real people and start to just like become the the caricatures of the their characters. So there's that. But what I forgot was that there, it's also mixed with so many small moments that were just like, what the fuck? That could be <laughs> could be blown out of proportion when viewed with someone else, like we did probably when we watched this the first time. But can kind of sneak by or seem less noteworthy when the movie's viewed alone. So that was my thing. I think what we were, you know, there's those, there's the big obvious eye roller moments. They, they sprinkle in these smaller, weird decision moments that just like kind of like egg us on as we're watching it, you know, in, oh, in yeah. a scenario where we're watching it together. Whereas, you know, watching it alone, that stuff doesn't feel so like in your face. No, I would agree with you, though. I would, I will say that's the stuff that I stuck around for. That was the part of this rewatch that I most enjoyed. The mm-hmm. small confusions, the small unexplained choices right because when she's like sliding down you know when she's skiing down a hill and accidentally like gets into olympic qualifying race like that's that's kind of comedy 101 but yeah there's some (laughs) there's some choices in this that are just like very befuddling very befuddling uh i do want to quickly piggyback the my biggest gripe with the movie is exactly as you described it the big draw 
to me, as someone who was not in the target demographic for the film or the original book, the reason why I loved both so much and I enjoyed both so much is that they were supremely relatable. Mm-hmm. And the Bridget Jones character in both was played in a way that was genuinely funny, genuinely a mess, but in a way that you're also pretty convinced that about 200,000 Bridget Jones live within 30 miles of you. Maybe mm-hmm. that you yourself might be a Bridget Jones. And that was really cool. I, I I think a lot of media strives to hit a character like Bridget Jones on the head, but but doesn't reach it or doesn't strike correctly. Um, so to see them so immediately and so drastically dial us up past 11 all the way to 15, it was disappointing because I think the property and the characters are actually quite good. Absolutely. And I, re- I read a couple reviews about this movie. Um, I think I read Roger, Ebert review, Ro- Roger Ebert's review from 2004 and some other review in The Guardian. The reviewer made a point that I thought was smart that kind of like, you know, goes parallel to what you just said, that in the, in the first book or the, when the first movie in the book, things happen to Bridget, whereas in this, it feels like she's happening to things like her, like the skydiving <laughs> yeah. and, you know, like we're going to get into all of this, but she stopped being as relatable. And that was like the best thing that she had going for her as a character. Bingo. Totally. And a point immediately raised by my lovely partner, Sarah, the stakes of the relationship in the first one were really high and really clear. And there was a meaningful tension between the two men and of course, between Bridget and both men. Not really the case I am forced to say here. The stakes never really get off the ground, in my opinion. And that really kind of deflates the entire romantic tension that's presupposed to be central to the plot. The fact that the movie starts with her saying exactly how long they've been together, and it's like an extremely short period of time. Mm. And then it's like the relationship drama starts from there with her like, being having a lot of anxiety about him not proposing yet like that that is not that relatable. was like not, not at relatable. all yeah that like she like says it at one point like oh it's been because uh, she has the pregnancy scare right and then like within you know a matter of like less than a week of the of like movie time they're having that conversation in his foyer about how you know she she's like do you want to marry me it's like okay it's been two months let's slow down no. like a normal relationship that's still the honeymoon phase they're arguing about this now. Bizarre, bizarre. They're acting like at thirty-three. It's like, or I mean, she's only she's thirty-three at the filming. Renee Zellweger is, but her character is only supposed to be thirty-one. Uh, it's it's pretty preposterous. Not relatable at all. And I, I agree. It just the wind is taken out of things almost instantly. Steve, do you have any more reactions about the rewatch that you applied? Because I feel like most of our commentary is gonna aggregate in this first segment that we have prepared no that was my my big one was just like this movie watched in a group it could it could feel worse than it actually is i guess well i mean that's debatable i did not find it as memorably earth shatteringly awful uh watching it by myself for this but i couldn't see how we got there on our first watch (laughs) that's fair i i put it like this to sarah i said it's got actually some pretty decently high highs, but its lows are really very low. Trenched here, absolutely. <laughs> and speaking of which, Steve, everybody's favorite segment coming up here in just a second, Takedown Breakdown. Breakdown. 
Steve, Takedown Breakdown is the segment reserved for gaffes, goofs, spectacles, confusing decisions. The things we don't like, we take down. The things that we don't understand, we try to break them down. Oh, boy. I think is, we how are do... we going to wrap our arms around this? First of all, I just want to say, I thought you started that so well with the alliteration. I wanted to see if you had any more Gs in you uh, to describe <laughs> this segment, but no, still, still well to. done. Thanks very much. I think we have to work our way up to the grand finale, which yeah, I hope I we agree. agree. I, we can't even theoretically agree on what the grand finale of the segment is, but I, I have a very simple question for you. To the best of your knowledge, what is six weeks after December 25th? Okay. I, I, there was big, big time um, continuity issues here. So six weeks after December 25th, that would put us like Valentine's Day almost exactly. Yeah. Good. Good. Now, if you... So Mid-February? Yeah. Central London. What do you think the weather's like? I wanted to look this up because I, you know, I spent some time in Italy, which, you know, I know the climate's different than England. I don't, but my point is I don't know what the climate in England is like at that time of year because in Italy it was like, you know, I was in like semi-northern Italy, so it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, in Sicily or anything, but it was not, we didn't get like a proper winter. Um, I know England is kind of known for its winters or London anyway, but um yeah, the point you're getting at here is like there's no snow on the ground. There's so it starts with the turkey curry buffet just as the first movie did. We get to like the second scene and it feels like it's I don't even know like fall maybe or like early spring. Yeah, that's there's my not issue. there's snow nowhere to be found. It's verdant green bloom across the English countryside, and we get a <laughs> large tracking shot of it as we begin the film. Actually, the second scene, as you pointed out, it, about to be. Treated to Bridget Jones solo skydiving. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do get like a very lush countryside in the first scene. Um, that, uh, yeah. That, for a movie I, that like, and they, they still try. I mean, they really abandoned the diary gimmick pretty quickly in this movie. We talked about that in the first movie. But uh, they, they, I mean, they, they at least like pay lip service to it by starting it, you know, at the you know basically where the first movie started as well. She starts by writing in the diary. We were back at Christmas time. They got their goofy sweaters on. It's very cute. Then like less than a week in movie time, because very soon after this, she will actually reveal to us that she's still within you know the six week sex fog or whatever she calls it, and it is it is the dead of summer in England. Very bizarre. Yeah, bad job by them continuity wise. Why don't you go? Because I've. I, I mean, I could sit here. I could. I know it's it's going to be hard to sift through this. Okay. Um. I I kind of went chronologically, but the other thing that we're gonna I hope oh, you know we don't bore our listeners too much here. There's going to be a lot of cross pollination of segments. I feel like in this uh, podcast because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know you yeah. gotta. And I just want to make sure everyone understands, including my co-host, that the O scene is the scene that made you go O, oh, and that's for good or for bad. So it's not yes, like the best scene of the movie no, by any means. Nor so is mine. Keep that in mind. I don't know. Chronologically speaking, I didn't have a ton to say about the skydiving. I mean, that, that's a first example. I mean, we guess we could check these off, but just like groaner, obvious, kind of slapsticky moments that, yeah, like as you said, like go past 11 I didn't really have anything specific to take down with that. I thought the first thing where she, I, this might've happened before that even, but they do the sound of music fantasy and first, oh. first little jaunt, like the first time he, you see him running up the hill, that just made me laugh. So I wanted to shut that out. 
That's gonna that that should let our listeners know how much there is to take down in this movie. That I'm we bringing have, that yeah. up, but we are not four minutes into the film yet. No, uh, <laughs> this is gonna be a three hour podcast. <laughs> then let's rapid fire it because the next thing that I've got not that long from here, uh, the extremely well considered jellyfish sting counter gag. Oh, dude, I was dying to ask you about this. So what? Yeah, just let me know what were you thinking when you saw that. The jellyfish meter that appears on screen. So they do this thing in the first film as well. I guess it speaks to their credit lightly that they've continued this sort of blended overlay fantasy style meta commentary with the screen work. But the movie kind of seems to think that jellyfish stings are like a thing that you would actually reference or is a joke that we should have buy into before going into the film. But what really happens is if you don't catch her say the word jellyfish off screen, sort of in her mumbled British English, that was you my are thing. suddenly very confused why there is an animated jellyfish going up and down as they exchange barbs. Totally. That was, yeah, what you said is exactly true. The, the I didn't quite catch it the first go round. So I was just like, what is happening here? And even, even if you did <laughs> understand, if you heard her like crystal clear, it still feels like a stretch because like, yeah, like you mentioned, like a jellyfish. Yes, everyone knows you can be stung by them, but it's not like I've never heard of like a person's like venomous words be described as like a jellyfish's sting. So it's just kind of like a weird like analogy to draw. Very strange. Didn't didn't make any sense at all. Uh, please interject. But can we move on to the party? I got a, I got one before that. So the, the speakerphone gag when she calls him in his office. It's so <laughs> cheap. Hope you like that one, listeners, because it's not the last time we're going to see something like that. Recurring. <laughs> but yeah, so she calls him to like, just because just she's so smitten, she can't help herself. She kind mm-hmm. of like tries to resist, calls him, picks up the phone, does the classic thing. We think we talked about this in the OC too, but it like he answers, they talk, she says something that's supposed to be private, they pull back, he's in a room full of people. Mm. It's ludicrous. Like, why is he answering a call in that moment? Like, does he not have a secretary? Such why a, immediately default to speakerphone? Yeah, such a bad execution of that gag, which is like can be super funny. One of my favorite moments in Arrested Development is ha- happens early in season one, and they do like an entire scene, like in an office room, and you think it's just like three or four characters, and it goes on for a long time, and then they pull back, and it's like a room full of people. But this is just yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense why he picks up the phone, why it's on speaker, like you said, yeah, just and and it's not the last time we see that, so. Just wanted to no. shout that one. In fact, they continually up the ante with the number of people in the room, which does play into one of my pet theories about the film, but we can get to that later. Now we're at the at the party, and I'm perplexed. There's a scene where our man, Mark Darcy, talks to Bridget, and he's sort of stern with her because she's already made an ass of herself. And she says, or he says, you'll be sitting by this guy. And then she says, you won't be sitting by me? And goes, no, it's impossible. We cut to where they're actually sitting, and he's like two seats away from her. Yeah, they're at the same table. <laughs> across the table from each other. I was like, oh, he's probably got to sit at some head table or something. Yeah. No, he's he's literally across from her. And hmm. then that, that sad sack dude is talking to her about how they're just not the type of people, or they're the type of people who just don't belong there. <laughs> just absurd they're the, you know they're like within earshot the of, every, so, yeah, of everyone else 
Oh my God, oh. that was maddening. I mean, you're, you're skipping over a few. I'll do, I'll do, I'll make these quick. But so the red face, the red face makeup scene that starts that is just such a groaner, so dumb and unoriginal. Oh, hacked here. And then followed by like the laziest lack of nuance conversation about the homeless issue, which kind of leads to her putting her foot in her mouth, which is like, I guess, important. But yeah, mm. that conversation was strange and then we skipped over a few i wanted to mention shazzer's braid in that <laughs> scene with the jellyfish that was a weird what the shazzer's fuck? hairstylist and or hat chooser has gone awry during the course of this film it's very um the hat choosing anyway it's very reminiscent of anna uh season oh. one of the OC. yes i can't disagree and then um, we also met, you might have this coming up in a later segment, but Zellweger looking into the camera after staring at Darcy while he's sleeping. Oh, yeah. Totally. This, this is what I'm getting at here, though. You know, like you could be like, oh, Steve, you're nitpicking. But this is these are the things that are happening in almost every scene that, you know, just like. If it's you're the in, sheer concentration of it, Steve. If every you're in the scene. mood to make fun of this, there is like no lack of material. Oh, it's unbelievable. It is packed wall to wall. You can't go five seconds without seeing something that you could conceivably scratch your head about. Just, huh? Why'd they do that? Wait, what the hell did they do say? So, sorry, I, I kind of, we're all over the place now, uh, and that's my fault. But, so we, we're, at <laughs> no. the, we're at the party. I don't know, like, she kills it in the contemporary culture section of the quiz. That was fun. You know, that, I didn't have a problem with that. That, that felt no. right. But I did like when they all gave her like a big round of applause when she answers like some question about a reality show. <laughs> Footballers' wives. <laughs> Continuity issue. She is sitting at Rebecca Giles's table, and then Rebecca Giles answers the winning question for a different table. Yeah, from across the later. room. Yep. I don't know. But did they just not care? They must not have cared. I guess not. Yeah, that was that was also confusing. I am ready to go on mini break. Okay. So let me tell let let me wait for you to tell me if there's some pre mini break lightning that needs to rain down. No, nothing, nothing. Uh, I, that was that was my next section as well. Mini break is a disaster, Steve. Uh, hi, yeah. What? So what was your? What were you most offended by in this scene? Oh, I was most offended by the absolute. I'm gonna say it. Idiotic gag where she is skiing she loses control immediately shout out to her stunt double who skis snowplow style at some speed for several minutes but then like enters like you mentioned an olympic slalom event straight out of an 80s flick (laughs) then the announcer's like She's actually setting a new record. Wow, folks, you can't believe it. And then she plows through the gate, goes over a cliff. That actually, I like how it ends because it is so audacious. Yeah, that that she slowly slides into the drugstore. (laughs) Right into the pharmacy. (laughs) That was actually, yeah, I I wouldn't say that redeemed it. And what you said is absolutely true. It's very 80s you know, like ski comedy. I can't, I think that's like a trope that exists. I don't know what actually movie that it's referencing, but yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. It's got a definite vibe, but yeah. And it's, it's just played like the most obvious dumb way possible. So stupid. Yeah. This, the slowly sliding in like right to the, the front, the counter where the pharmacist is, is kind of funny. What did you think of the pregnancy charades? Um, pretty brutal to me, for me personally. 
I was actually I because I laughed so hard about when when she just like first of all there's like a Walgreens on this mountain right. and then she like goes up and she like stays in her skis and I'm like that's actually kind of good so I was in a good mood and the rapid fire way that all the like other patrons start like trying to figure it out in German was actually kind of amusing but it goes on and then you're suddenly the spell is broken and you're like wow this has got to stop immediately that's kind of where I was. It, I think it was largely inoffensive, but yeah, I, I also did not find it funny. Yeah, it wore off in about a quarter of a second. Oh, man. Talk about going downhill. Wow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving on to the breakup uh, where, where Darcy and, and Bridget Jones finally call it quits for now, dot, dot, dot. Well, I'll, I'll just go for it. Brid Jones says the words, it's like you never want to fight for me. Now, mm-hmm. in movie time, 10 weeks earlier, Mark Darcy literally attempted manslaughter on the other main character in the film. That's a great Fuck. observation. I didn't even think about that. But yeah. Kicked that's... his ass in front of 70 witnesses. <laughs> yeah, commits assault. Should have been stripped of his legal, you know, his, his <laughs> Should law be license. in prison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't really get what she was going. I mean, if she meant it figuratively, he also flew back from New York to be with her. I don't. But it's it's funnier to say, how could you literally say that? He right. literally had a fight for you. It's a great point. Um, I wish I would have thought of it. But yeah, it's an awesome observation. I was like too stymied by the like, yeah. What and what opportunity was he like put in to fight for her? Like he she was upset that like he didn't stick up for her at the law ball. Is that it? it was like that was like what we're supposed to take from that? It and was very precipitous, Steve. I've got no real idea. I mean, she was she, she had right to be mad. He he sort of acted like a ponce. Yeah, no, I I don't. I'm length, not arguing but, that. But yeah, like the the line itself that you never like you never, whatever she says the thing about you never you know it feels like you're never going to fight for me like that where that had no not, context, it's not applicable didn't make sense yeah. My the thing that made me laugh most about that scene. Well, first of all, there's a part where she walks by her own tombstone, like, and was that supposed to be played for laughs? <laughs> like, it's in like a pretty somber. Moment. I didn't but, notice that. Does that happen? Yeah, dude. Yeah, th- she she's walking away from the uh, from his house, and like that Mary J. Blige song is playing. That's all <laughs> oh. sad. And she walks by like a graveyard, and it says, you know, it has like the dates, and it says Bridget Jones, and then underneath it says Spinster. Oh, my God. I must so, have taken a bite of soup at that time. Or something. I know. Yeah, you can't take your eyes off the screen. You're going to miss nuggets like that. But then also, I don't. this is also, I mean, you had to be paying pretty close attention to this, but not even that close because she's in that, there's that scene, it's like right after that with the, with the walk home, and she's in the window of her apartment looking out, and it does that slow pan out. And then you realize like they're panning away and like you can see kind of all of London, but it's very obvious that they've like CGI'd happy couples and like a few of like the lit windows. Yeah. That like. <laughs> yeah. That was, that's like one of the, this is the, that this is the creme de la creme of, of point outs because it's not, a, it's not necessarily offensive. It's just so gosh dang confusing. Like. So weird. Such a weird use of CGI for 2004. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, it was clear CGI also. It did not really go. 
And it, it just like spoke to me. This happened in the first movie as well. Occasions, and it sounds weird to say it given the context, but where the ambition of the filmmaker seems to outstrip their abilities a bit. And it was like the the couples were so small, but so badly <laughs> CGI'd. And the scene went on for so long. And you were you just started to ask yourself, like, what am I seeing? What's on the screen? The couple looking through the telescope was my personal favorite. <laughs> just wanted to throw I, there was it. one in mid-coitus that I was like, oh, Lord, of course, <laughs> of course you have to. I feel like like one in three was pregnant, too. There was a lot of like happily rubbing like a pregnant stomach. <laughs> yes, there were a lot of cherished bellies. Yeah. Are we headed to Thailand yet, Steve? I think so. I think I'm ready to get on the plane. Oh, hold on. Sorry. I don't mean to to uh, interrupt you there. I, I wanted to shout this out. I liked this. The Ben and Jerry joke had big moms on Facebook humor vibes to it. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I like moms on Facebook memes. It's like a fun subgenre <laughs> of meme. I didn't grace that one with a space in my notebook. But. <laughs> I was taking no prisoners. I was like, you only do a Edge of Reason podcast once in your life. Ain't that the truth? Everybody gets one Edge of Reason podcast. We haven't even talked <laughs> about the, the the actual subtitle. Like, does it make any sense at all? What does it mean? Oh God, Steve. Let's let's save that one for better or worse. Okay. I, uh, it will kick things off with that. Sorry. I do want to get on a plane, head to Thailand. Let's do it. Uh, we've got one one of the original airplane gag. I think the first time when Orville and Wilbur Wright took off 10 seconds later charlie chaplin made this joke about a overweight person sitting next to you on a plane Uh, very tasteful original fresh (laughs) so i like the way that guy handled himself though like you know he introduces himself and very gregarious yeah he leans uh, in for the handshake right away um i'm i'm happy he didn't grab her ass like so many other characters in the film but Mm. i do i i have a a, a question that exists at a high level to post to you, Steve. Is this the low point of the film? Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask you a similar question later on. When did this movie officially jump the shark? But what do you have a scene in particular or the whole Thailand sequence? Thailand in general. I mean, I do want to get this out of the way. It's not, it's not quite in the same fun-loving mood as the rest of our barbs and jests, but... It uh, it takes a turn into a realm that Bridget Jones is a media property doesn't do too often into the straight up cultural defamation, just her- horrendously unfair, absolutely fair to call it racist depiction of the entire country. Okay, so you're you're saying outside of the prison, this even before the prison scene, you felt this way. There's, yes. What what in particular? kind of like rubbed you the wrong way i think that the casting of the people who are who are supposed to be thai natives and their sort of hollywoodified asian accents Mm. were were pretty bad i think how hugh grant's first correspondence is from a massage parlor where you get happy endings is not not a super tasteful reflection on the culture, but of course, it not none all of this pales, even though it's bad, to what happens in the prison. So, um, but but that it, I'm sort of mentioning it all at once, so we don't have to go over and again with disclaimers about us not endorsing 
this type of humor. I think it's a low point in terms of, yeah, if it's like politically correct. Although the word poof gets thrown around quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's, <laughs> that's, that was kind of like the uh, Seth Cohen minty. That was just like, I think I know what that means, but I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I want to save that, that conversation for the prison scene because I feel like that was where, when we first watched it, I was like, that was where I was like, wow, this is really like an abomination. I yes. feel a little bit differently now. Um, the, 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 the scenes that you're mentioning, I do, like the accents, you know, it, it feels like it's a, like we're supposed to be having a laugh at that. At just like, yeah, like the, for lack of a better word, like thickness of those accents. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm being like charitable to the movie, I don't know, you know, who I don't know anything about those actors. I don't know anything about their origins. I don't who knows. They might be native Thai people. I have no idea. Sure. I don't want to, you know, I don't feel like totally comfortable being like that's racist. I don't know anything about, you know, those individuals. Um, the Hugh Grant thing. Yeah, that's that was a little iffy. You know, the the weird like porno vibe of his. <laughs> we haven't really said the word. We haven't said the words Daniel Cleaver yet, but. He does have like a strange porn vibe to his travel show. Uh, yeah, he. So it's let's not. Let's explain to the listeners who might not be familiar <laughs> with what exactly is occurring in this. In this, this the tipping point in the, in the middle of the film. I can't believe we've, we've not actually addressed it. Is you're like at home, you haven't watched this yet, and you say, "How the hell is Daniel Cleaver back in the movie? Didn't he get his ass kicked?" Yes, but. In the intervening months, Daniel Cleaver has inexplicably become a BBC travel show host. Months? It's like, like you said, it's six weeks. Like, what? <laughs> like how, yes. how, why was it so easy to get like an on-screen television job in England in the early 2000s? Yeah, he went to the same guy as Bridget Jones' mom. Um, and Bridget but- Jones herself, for God's sake. <laughs> It's not just a travel show, though. Like you said, it's like um, it's like Andrew Zimmer, but instead of food, it's sex, and he right. does raunchy, salacious, guy-forward um, turn of the millennium bullshit. Totally. I don't want to say like you're incorrect, and like if you if you felt like you know it was a little bit uncouth the way that they handled these Thailand scenes, but to the movie's defense, like it's not like he went to Thailand to to you know visit a brothel and you know order prostitutes like he has like weird like you know pervy lines about every place he goes to in that travel show you know that is true that is true i'm not prepared to give this movie any benefits of the doubts though as, no, I, as yeah. i've already threatened <laughs> i mean so, I'm, I'm like bending over backwards to pick every nit i can so <laughs> you're, you're talking to the right, right. guy here now we're on the beach i, I want to do the hallucinogenics Yes. Scene. Okay. Yeah. The visual yeah, effects the, the, during the mushroom trip. I think they blew their whole CGI budget on that, you know, that weird pan through London. But let me hear your thoughts. All right. Well, this is an, it's another known trope. Shazer, who has committed all sorts of sins in this film, feeds Bridget Jones uh, mushrooms. This is something you can order off the menu, by the way. Not explained. It's delivered to her uh, table and she eats it and she gets immediately super high. Mm-hmm. She does what all uh, tripping people do and wades out into the ocean. Her friends do not stop her. And then we get, we get an overlay, a graphic overlay. I want to tell you the earliest year in television history that I think it would have been appropriate for it to be on screen in terms of the technical achievement. <laughs> you stop me. 
1979? Yeah, I think those effects were. were I, w- I would have said sometime in the 70s. Not having like Basically, a real wealth of knowledge of like what the you know what was capable back then, but um, it, yeah, it definitely felt you know three to four decades old. It was just wavy. They just made the screen wavy, and then they put like the stars. Stars. <laughs> they put stars on the screen. Yeah, I, like I mentioned before, though, I haven't done hallucinogens myself, so I can't say for sure that that's not what happens. But I mean, whatever the ca- whatever the case is, the effects were elementary. It not aided at all by Zellweger's acting of being high. She mm. just kept saying the colors are so pretty over and over again. And I was like, this is... I don't I don't like to use this word because it's very in vogue and very of the times, but I was cringing, bro. Oh, damn. <laughs> damn, that's cringe. <laughs> you just posted cringe. Uh, yeah, it was, it was bad. Okay, should we do it? Should we, should we discuss the prison? I got one more though. Okay, let me hear very it. quickly. I I had some raw words for the people who did the set design in Bridget Jones' Diary One, but the set dresser's unchecked power continues to reign terror over the movie. She ducks into Cleve's bathroom. The bathtub is full of tiny floating candles and like lotus petals. What was sorry? What, <laughs> where where are you going with this? I'm saying so. I I am accusing the film of overdressing its sets. Okay. And I don't know why an unused bathroom would be would have a full bath. And just they just got back to the apartment, by the way, or the the bungalow. The bath is full. It's got candles. It's got about ten candles floating in it. And it's got like lotus petals sprinkled all over it. Mm, like who set it up? Yeah, why? What? When are we led to believe that this occurred? Hard to say. Yeah, that's tough. I, yeah, Daniel Cleaver just like that's that's on the rider for his travel show. He just has to have <laughs> <a> fl- <laughs> floating ready at all times. What's his candle budget? Yeah. Okay. Now, now we could do it. Okay. I got legit nervous when the prison scene started um i did too because i was watching it with someone who's never seen it before and i was feeling like it was reflecting on me (laughs) (laughs) you didn't want to get blamed um yes steve so she runs afoul of i guess thailand's version of tsa drug dog very cute sniffs her out lands her in thai prison the premise is already frankly i'm gonna tip my hand a little bit premise is a little bit flawed uh it kind of sticks to the theme of just like overdoing it when there's no need to overdo it but Mm. let us stay on topic where to even begin with once she's actually in the prison well you said it like it it does kind of veer off and gets a little ugly but I want to start positive. I actually really liked the guy who played the like the ambassador person who initially <laughs> kind of comes to her rescue sort of before like a, Darcy shows up. Totally. He's kind of like a low-budget Simon Pegg type character. Yeah, totally. And he he's very English. And I like, like you know, the way he says he sounds like the most frightful shit. And uh, <laughs> he has that line. He's like, the bore is everyone who gets caught has exactly the same story. Uh, kind of lets her know very gently that like <laughs> there's no easy way out of this uh, i like that totally. guy. 
Yeah, he fl- he plays it really well. He's he's kind of delightful. Um, unfortunately, I think that that remains our silver lining to a storm cloud of ugliness. Um, lots lots to dissect. There are funny gaffes. There are confusing gaffes. There are some some tense, some racially tense gaffes. Um, little of everything. Should we should we like begin with the very confounding? way that she is introduced to her fellow prisoners uh, a young woman comes up to her sees her red bra and i don't for, for some reason offers to buy it off her for two cigarettes and then wears it as an outer garment confusing and then that this leads into the madonna number the sing-along which i feel like is like the first kind of like cringe moment um to use the parlance of our times <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so why do they, why, why are they doing a Madonna sing-along, like, song and dance number? It's because the the mechanism for introducing it is still foggy to me. The other prisoners do not know the correct words to Madonna's Like a Virgin. And this, this rubs Bridget Jones the wrong way. She's like, yeah, if you're going to sing it, sing it right, essentially. And um, and so they sing like a virgin. It definitely feels like the joke is at the expense of these women's accents. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that... But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how far down the road to go with that. I think that I, yeah. it, it feels a little weird. I don't... Yeah. I do like the fact that they're kind of making a connection through like a mutual knowledge and appreciation of like a song, like some type of pop cultural artifact. You yeah, know, does that remind you of anyone? That's <laughs> something that I feel, yeah, I feel like you and I uh, can relate to as well. So I like that aspect of it. Yeah. I, but yeah, like the, it kind of does feel like we're supposed to think it's funny because they have such like thick accents, which feels kind of gross, but it's not uh, yeah, I feel, exactly. It exactly. goes downhill from there. Honestly, like, well, I wanted to get your take on how you felt about the scene where she realizes that she had it pretty sweet with Darcy after all. Yeah. This is about as bad as it gets. I mean, debatably, which is already strikes like one and two, but the fact that it's not definitively the worst part of this piece of the plot is it's spooky to say the least. But yeah, we've got probably the most tone-deaf bit of writing in the entire pantheon of Western culture. Uh, so <laughs> Not to put she, too fine a point on it. <laughs> uh, the problem is, it's, it's like multi-layered. So she comes back from her meeting with Darcy, who claims that he is simply the mercenary, the messenger. Brit- British high regard has pulled strings to get her released. And she's in tears because she's realized that Mark Darcy no longer loves her. Rearriving in her cell, tear-stained cheeks, her much worse off, impoverished, wrongfully imprisoned cellmates are worried for her. And they say, what's wrong, Bridget? You have to stay. They screwed you like they screwed up. And, And she says, no, I'm getting out, but my boyfriend doesn't love me. And so then they still, against all logic are on her side and say, oh, what did he do? And they start regaling her with their experiences with men who, by the way, have like abused them. Yeah, some pretty horrific things, honestly, that they mention. (laughs) Exactly. Forced prostitution, drug addiction. And instead of learning a lesson, Bridget Jones just like plays it for laughs. And she goes, oh, yep, all that stuff, the abuse and whatnot. Well, and I think they, that she I think she realizes that yeah, she 
really actually did have it pretty good with Darcy and the things that she was complaining about him were ridiculous. But she doesn't like fess up to it, obviously. She, you know, <laughs> tells the lie like, yep, yeah, drug addiction and abuse, just like you. Which, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think the whether or not she's like able to confess to them is like a, on the side. The privilege of all of it is kind of what I find particularly sickening. Totally. I just want to know who greenlit this idea. It's like, you know what would be a funny gag? These 40 impoverished, politically imprisoned, dirty, malnourished, abused women. You, you keep like giving them the benefit of the doubt of why they're in prison. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, they might be criminals. Them. They might be criminals. But I mean, but, yeah, the point remains like they actually have faced hardships. If we're to take them by their word, whereas Bridget Jones is not. And she's been, you know, much too fussy about, you know, her her issues with Darcy. But yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, in the climate that we're in right now, the white privilege stuff is on everybody's radar. It feels like in a more um, intense way than it has been in the past for good reason. And watching something like this is just kind of like drives it home in a way that's like, oh, man, like the, you know, this people didn't bat an eye at this when it came out. You know, the the couple reviews I read, there was no mention of like how distasteful like these scenes were. And honestly, like. Maybe we're being a little bit too sensitive, but it felt weird watching it. And I also felt very mm-hmm. weird about like the the kind of white saviorism that ends that scene where, you know, she hands out bras and chocolate while Material Girl plays to these women. Oh Everybody my God. like cheers. It's that that also <laughs> felt gross. You know, <laughs> That's like, brutal. I don't know if we want to rank like which was worse. I honestly felt like the <laughs> part where she kind of forced to face her privilege, um, yeah, that that I felt a little more grossed out by, but the whole thing was was very very. And I mean, the, normally we like to like have fun with these types of takedowns. This stuff actually like, I don't know. What did you did you feel like this was not as bad, worse, or about the same as what you remember from watching it the first time? It was yeah, you know, it was about as bad. I remember we were like we were out of our minds, uh, just like perplexed by how how this version of all of these scenes made it into the final movie. Um, I, I, I do like the Madonna callback. The material girl almost feels tongue in cheek when it plays, but that's a good, yeah, I, for sure. Cause I feel like with some of the comedy in this movie, they're just really like beating you to death with it. But that felt like a more like, you know, callback to an earlier part of the movie, which was effective as opposed to just like the, the slapstick stuff that, you know, we're bludgeoned with for most of the movie. True. It does not escape unscathed, though, as as I have to point out, the first gift that she gives them is, do you remember the actual book title? It's like feminist literature written in English. And she right, gives, yeah. Like, she gives them <laughs> <a bunch laughs> paperbacks. Well, it's like, it is essentially like men are from Mars, women are from, women are from Venus, but it's just in English. Yeah. <laughs> just what, could you think of, could you actually, Steve, this is a little thought experiment. Can you think of a worse gift to a bunch of prisoners? Who like don't have like soap, <laughs> yeah, like books in another language. Um, that's tough. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, it's not good. So all of Thailand is a is a nuclear crater. I think we have agreed. But we are back. We leave Thailand, thankfully in the rear view. With it, Daniel Cleaver, who kind of done dirty by his being affiliated with that part of the movie. But do you have any more any parting shots? I'm sure there are still some. For Takedown Breakdown, man, I feel like we've been in this segment for most of our adult lives at this point <laughs> from when we 
Not just when we started I'm the podcast. I'm actually ready to move on, but it, it's... Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's move on. I mean, there, there's other flames. I mean, my O-scene, I'm going to have some flames, but I'll save them for, for later segments. I'm glad that you said you'd save your O-scene stuff for later because we're about to go right into it. This is the O-scene. So, folks, the O-scene persists. It's the scene that makes us say, oh, for good, bad, or otherwise. Steve, why don't you go first? I, like, if I were a betting man... I would say we have a 10% chance of having the same scene as our O scene. Um, my O scene is more of a O segment. I would say it's the entire <laughs> finale. I don't know if I'm cheating there. Um, <laughs> is this yours I, as well? No, my mine takes place during the the climax, but it's more it's more focused. Okay, let's let's just go through the whole thing then. Um, okay, so. Those scene that I have picked out, yeah, that fi- that kind of finale segment where she goes after Darcy. I would say it's a good encapsulation of this movie as a whole. There's some <laughs> some things I like. There's some right, a lot of wrong. Um, mm. Mm. It's a good start with the friends relaying the series of events that lead to her release and like Darcy's role in the whole thing. I found that part very similar to the first book where Darcy saves Bridget's mother from like that Portuguese law situation that she finds herself in. Yeah. Yeah, I can see sort of similarly inspired if nothing else. Yeah, I I mean we should mention, I don't know if we mentioned this yet, but the um this movie is based on a book. Bridget Jones Edge of Reason is a novel by Helen Fielding. Uh we did not take the time to read the book um for this podcast, but I don't know if the, you know if the Thailand stuff happens. I don't know, you know, how much if it's if it's it's actually supposed to be just like a, a reference to the first book or not. Uh, I just kind of felt like that way to me. Either way, I like that stuff, you know, where they're kind of like laying out everything that he actually did to save her. Sure. Going from there, though. So pouring rain out of nowhere. Not a big deal, <laughs> but okay. Um, yep. So it, it, she gets up to his, uh, you know, townhouse. And this is where we get, we, you know, she's greeted by Rebecca, not Mark. We haven't talked that much about Rebecca. What did you think about Rebecca in general? Okay, well, I'm I'm gonna take over for a second because this specific moment is my O scene. Oh, wonderful! Uh, okay, so great. we'll we'll have a quick little stop off at mine and then continue with yours. What I think about Rebecca, not too unfavorably. I think her her character ha- is a little one dimensional. So what? She's supposed to be the rival love interest or or this specter of infidelity that looms over. Uh, her Bridget's relationship with Mark. She's, you know, she's attractive. She is well-spoken and much more composed than Bridget. She works well as a foil, but I, I mean, there's nothing really like interesting about her. She just doesn't have anything really going for her. She's sort of tall, I guess. It's, it's yeah, they mentioned that quite a bit. That, that's her her biggest trait. <laughs> what did you? No think pun of her? intended. Um, I liked her quite a bit. I mean, she. So, okay, so let's just, I'll just say, like, okay, she, she confesses her love for Bridget. That's, like, the yes. big twist. This yeah. is, this is yes. when the movie actually jumped the shark for me. I mean, there was a lot of contenders up until this point. But on this watch, I had totally forgotten about that. And that's when I, like, ultimately threw my hands up and was like, holy shit. <laughs> Do you remember this coming, or did no. you? Okay. I, I'm astonished we have such similar experiences. I... I thought for sure you'd have remembered this, but when I saw it and I literally said, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. What was Sarah's reaction? She was appalled. (laughs) Okay. Not not because of any sort of like stodginess, but the the fact that I, I have mixed opinions about this scene. 
Let me start with my tacit praise. It is at least ambitious. Here's why. It feels very much to me like the movie wants us to be in on the joke with it. Now, right away, my praise is going to come couched in criticism. They do not actually set this up at all. There, it, there is not a meaningful seeded twist. It seems completely far-fetched and stapled on. That said, it is, like many other things in the film, almost amusing in its pure audacity. It does seem like they're <laughs> taking the piss out of rom-coms, out of the last-minute confession like that you get in a lot of, of romantic comedies is a known trope. And then they're like kicking it on its ass with like a total like just shameless twist. I liked how they at least tr- tried to do, or they did the flashbacks of all the moments of her like smiling at Bridget. Like they tried to earn it in that moment. They did try. They Whether or not succeed. it was effective. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel that way. Um, I was kind of charmed by the actor who plays Bridget. I can't remember. Let me look that up quick. Or, or Rebecca, you mean? Yeah, Rebecca. Sorry. Jacinda Barrett. I guess. Yes, I'm, I'm, she was good. I'm getting mowed down by the pronunciations for these British <laughs> names. Um, but yeah, she, I kept seeing Mandy Moore anytime I, there was like a close up of her, but I liked her in that scene. Definitely felt like a sharp shark jump, but also Zellweger's really good in that scene. I like when she, she when she says, but I'm afraid it's still men in general and Mark Darcy in particular that I love. And like, you know, she's <laughs> like very embarrassed, but like kind of, you know, like flattered as well. Yes. Really good I thought it was her. Now it's not entirely tasteful to make like the whole joke that she's a lesbian after all like that one also rankled a little bit of my left eyebrow but i would say in general it is o worthy for being preposterous mm-hmm. but also o worthy for being like somewhat redeemed i do also want to talk about the general implausibility of the of the mechanics of the situation though Oh, it's ludicrous. Like, why, she's barely why is exchanged, she... you know, like, how many how many times have they actually conversed? I mean, I guess you could have a crush on anyone, but, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Even, even more, Steve, let me ask you a simple question. Why is Rebecca Giles at Mark Darcy's home when he's not there? Why is she there why? originally? Why? Like, what is her role? I don't, in, in like, the... I think the, she's meant to be a legal office. aid, but yeah. I... I, I didn't I didn't spend any time thinking about that those type of plot mechanics with as much like audacious shit as happens in this movie. But <laughs> True. I don't, I don't it's, blame it's you for at of, least yeah. like a pa- that in, you know coming in a passing thought. Yeah, I don't. Do you have any more thoughts on this? I don't want to rob you of your O scene. No, please. Uh, my O scene of my my piece has been spoken. It okay. was it was a pure O scene. It had a little of everything. A little a little positivity. A lot of bafflement and a, and a few jabs. That was probably the part that I liked the most of this whole, um, the finale, but I'll just keep going. Uh, I did kind of, I also, man, I'm, I'm really contradicting myself here. I also like the mini outfit montage with the cab driver. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to talk about this in a second, but yeah, that, that was awesome. Okay. I'll we'll wait for, to break that down. Um, the double splash with the water from the car. Oh. By. Just, that's what I'm talking about. When I say like, you feel beaten to death by these jokes, like that's a prime example of that. Like that, that is... you just. Like it doesn't, okay, if it happened once, that's like the most obvious eye roller, but to have it happen again, that's when you just feel like they're really beating a dead horse. Um, just shameless. 
the song changes are like so abrupt and like so Dude, whiplash I'm inducing. I'm so glad you brought this up. I felt like I felt like they were having like a bet with themselves, the editor, to like how many <laughs> cues they could jam in. It was just cue after cue after cue and all completely different types of songs. For sure. So you get everlasting love, which is like there a lot of like we're not doing soundtrack in this episode, but so many like it's not as on the nose with the song titles when they play some, but just like classics, classic rom com songs that they like, you know, wedge in here. Everlasting Love by Love Affair. That's the first song they play. You're the first, the last, my everything by Barry White. And there's no like there's no transition with these. I mean, there obviously is a transition, but it's a it's so abrupt feeling when they change the songs. And then they go from that to like a topical song at the for the time, Crazy in Love by Beyonce and Jay-Z. But yeah, that that I also found like very distracting and I was almost like I was almost like a little like scared. Like there was so <laughs> yeah, much like, stimulus going on. There's like songs changing. Oh, she's running. Now the, the car's driving by, splashed again, splash, splash. I was like, oh God. It's not it's no wonder to me that what's her name? Barbizon or Bear with the director, she didn't like go on to do much. This is just bad film. I don't want to like get into filmmaker's yes. corner with Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, but this, this <laughs> is the type of like a sequence like this, if it's done incorrectly, these are the mistakes that someone makes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that, I think that's very fairly said. Okay. So, and then of course she goes into the wrong office, confesses her love to an old man. Hello. Uh, ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> makes it to the correct office. And of course, we get the uh, third reprisal of the gag where there's like a room full of people. At Mark Darcy, for like a top barrister, he's way too easy to get a hold of at work. Just <laughs> welcome, you know, like, yeah, knocks on the door, come on in, you know, no young lady, say what you have to say. This is another moment that I just remember us howling at the screen, like when this <laughs> happened. Just like, you no, know, yeah, just. Just tell, yeah, we're, there's like, uh, there's 30 people in this room doing, you know. No, say your piece. We right. all want to hear it. Mm-mm. So, yeah, all of that. And then the proposal scene, actually, they kind of redeem themselves. Darcy, he's, he's doing the, you know, Firth's doing the Darcy thing. I like the, that wasn't a very romantic proposition. And then he's like, well, I'm not going to say it now. You spoiled the moment. And he's like getting all embarrassed and shit. I think this is probably the best Firth in the movie, in my opinion. Yikes, that is such a bad that's that doesn't bode well for his his side of the table in turkey curry but uh yeah i i tend to agree when he's like almost petulantly bashful now when when like she's stepped in it again and again and right he's like downright refusing to even say it (laughs) so that is that did amuse me so yeah it's like it's kind of a mess like i said at the top it's a good encapsulation of like kind of how i felt about the whole movie a lot of it is incomprehensible, weird choices, but um, yeah, there's some redeeming stuff in there. Yeah, um, I think, so your original question to me, is this cheating? I will say yes, but I'll also say it was like a perfect opportunity to discuss one of the most frenetic, hectic, jam-packed parts of a, of a frenetic, hectic movie. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we did it. I, I'm glad you took us through it scene by scene. Because I'm like t- I'm exhausted hearing you describe it. That happens yeah. in li- that happens in like nine minutes. All oh, there's the song changes happen in like a matter of like four minutes. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. But uh, I I I didn't really get like a full answer from you. Do you have like a moment where you really felt like this movie jumped the shark? I think there were several acrobatics performed over various ocean dwelling animals. <laughs> 
Now, uh, the moment that the moment where I like, because the the beginning of the movie, like we stated, actually kind of stays on the rails a bit, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoyed it, but I would I would say they're lucky they sneak the skydive past you so fast because that could very well be like the the movie could open with a shark jump if you're not careful. Mm. Um, but I, I think I'll say the the mushrooms scene in Thailand. The the thing that is happening on screen becomes basically impossible to follow. That's that's when you've like had enough. That's when I had enough. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were still thirty minutes yeah, of bizarre like... scenes coming afterwards. All right, Steve. The O scenes. Actually, I think I think Edge of Reason emerged at, at about smelling as close to a rose as it could out of that O scene segment. Now, I've, I can't believe I'm going to say it, but I think I have a little more praise in store for it. In our very rare vintage of a segment, we're about to break out for you now, called For Meta or Worse. So, uh, Meta is a very in-term right now. It's basically a discussion about a thing that exists like outside of the thing, about, about the milieu, the zeitgeist that the thing exists in. And... When we're talking about this film, in terms of how it can be meta, since it exists in a pretty small, self-contained universe, uh, I would say it has to do with conversations about genre, about expectations, about subversions. And let me begin the conversation, Steve, by saying I think the thing that the movie does best is poke fun at romantic comedies from the inside. If I were to say that statement to you, how would you react? I would say that that's probably a charitable point of view on this movie. And I would ask to hear what your like examples are for the basis of that take. I don't think I like out of hand, I don't feel like it's incorrect, but if you're taking that stance, you might be giving the movie too much credit, but I'm willing to hear you out. I think that's a very realistic concern, but I'm going for it anyway. Um, let's start with this fight scene that we haven't talked about yet. So okay. first movie is very famous for what I think is like the weakest part of the movie. But what it is, is like they took the, the trope of, of, of fighting over the, the, the woman at the end of the romantic comedy and they like really went over the top with it. But they also like took the fangs out of it a little bit because at the beginning the, the two men like are really bad at fighting. Now, in this one, not only do they stick with that meta level where they're like, we're going to have an end of movie fight, but they're going to be like really like stupidly fighting. They like go to the extreme with that. Where like Darcy is like haphazardly chasing and like Hugh Grant is like running away from him, like very like tiptoeishly, like trying to escape him as they run around fountains. I don't know. Maybe I ha- I'm just a hack with bad taste, but I thought that was actually very funny. I read so much stuff about how, like, in the first movie and this movie, about how Hugh Grant and Colin Firth improvised those fight scenes. It's like, okay, we, <laughs> like we get it. Like they're not, you know, they seem very improvised. Like they're not, yes. like they're they don't seem choreographed. So if you were to say that they they looked especially choreographed and they were improvised, that would be impressive, not the other way around. But yeah, um, true, true, true. But no, like whether or not it works for you, like if you think that, you know, it's effective, uh, that's fine. My my pushback on that would be 
this feels more like sequelitis where it's like we did this and now we got to up the ante by yeah. doing it again and but this time they're gonna instead of crashing through a restaurant window they're gonna fall into a fountain and you know you could you know i don't really want to have a debate about which one's like zanier but i what i liked about this scene was the the kind of like he the the barb that grant gets in right at the end where he's like yeah you should you know propose to her because that way she'll definitely shag me like that was a i like that addition <laughs> that was a this. good that was a good barb um I so I mean let me let me press the subject just a little bit and I I might be guilty of this very millennial thing where it's like I something is like like lame or shitty and I'm like but what if it's shitty on purpose Steve then doesn't it make it genius and then this is when you say no <laughs> no, no you fool it doesn't but is doing a sequelitis callback where it's a direct almost per shot ripoff is that like trending into the realm of clever subversion or is it not i think you want to feel like it is and i don't think that you're incorrect like i like debating on intention is like not going to bring us anywhere if it worked for you that's you know then it worked like i i just like when you know the the meta quality of that i don't really see it if they're referencing themselves that you know you could you could make that argument and I'd listen to it but I don't know I don't like particularly feel like this was like winking in any obvious way to the viewer okay I I think that I think we've landed at a fair middle ground but I do have some other ammunition I do I do have some other evidence let's talk about the cab driver fashion show I think our listeners know mainstay of rom-coms is the uh, is the fashion show it usually takes place in a bedroom or a department store. I like to call uh, this the outfit montage. Yes, the yes. I think department store changing room is like the classic place for this to happen. Totally. But instead, we have the like much more goofy version here, where Bridget Jones keeps running up four flights of stairs to change her outfits, and then running down to get the cab driver's opinion on what she's wearing. I like the part where she came down wearing like a very Bridget Jones diary part one outfit, like the see-through top with like the very short skirt. That was a nice callback. Totally. And then the guy, the the cabbie, the cabbie's facial acting is really strong. Yeah. Well, that's the classic. I love the, I love like the, like the person in the changing room who's like either reading a paper or like doing some other like menial task and like looking up occasionally (laughs) and like either frowning or just shaking their head or going back to the paper or whatever. And then finally, like the person comes out in like the right outfit and they like, you know, give them like the, this happens very famously in Dumb and Dumber. Love that scene. (laughs) But yeah, this is class. I love, uh, I love that. But yeah, I agree with you on that one for sure. That, that definitely felt knowing. Yeah, and then the, we we talked about Rebecca Giles already, and that happens. And you know, you could even stretch. It's a stretch. I, I give it to you, but like doing the splash with water, then splashing her again instantaneously. But I almost wish they'd have splashed her a third time. That's what. I, yeah, you that. I think the two you're 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 bringing me around on that. Like they obviously they know that that's a thing, and so they're like, let's just like. We're smashing the button here in case you like didn't know. But yeah, that if they would have done it a third, yeah, if, they, if it just keeps going, it turns into like a Monty Python bit or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that basically makes my case. I did want to very quickly say 
I think the the one and only place this movie improved on the original was the one-liners. There were some like really nasty, like funny in like a weird, almost atonal way. Do you do you remember this scene? This is my favorite line in the whole movie. She originally shows up at Darcy's uh, estate, and uh, Rebecca Giles for the first time answers the door, and she goes, "Bridget Jones," and then. Zawick goes, no, I'm Bridget Jones. That was, yeah, that that was like a different kind of humor than the rest of the it movie. Was, it was completely out of left field. And I, I mean, I also liked, you've got great legs, Bridge, climber's legs. It's just like a, <laughs> it's like a joke that is so out of place, but because the rest of the, the movie is so gag heavy. These like incisive one-liners. Another, another one I liked, she's, when, when Giles goes, I haven't been here since I was 11. So Bridget Jones goes, ah, three years ago then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very sharp one-liners. Droll. And I, I don't, it's not very, yeah, it's, it's droll. I don't think it's, it's necessarily meta, but it is, it does seem self-aware at, at some level. Well, what's your verdict, Steve? Did I? Overall, I would say, I mean, we didn't even, you didn't mention it. It's a little, it's pretty obvious and it doesn't really go anywhere, but there is a part where she looks directly into the camera. I think I mentioned that earlier in the podcast. Oh yeah. That, but it doesn't, there's no like, I can't remember what the line she says when she, when she does that, but that I was like, oh, okay. That's the kind of thing we were talking about uh, in the first movie, like kind of weird flourishes that they don't return to the jellyfish meter also being one of those. (laughs) Yeah. Like you, you, you see something like that and you're like, okay, this is like, this is this type of movie and then they don't do it again. And it's like, it's played pretty, pretty down the middle in terms, in terms of like those type of external flourishes. I mean, some of the shit that happens in this is not down the middle at all, but otherwise it's like, it feels pretty normal. There's like, there's not, you know, like things appearing on screen that shouldn't, that wouldn't otherwise be there. But yeah, that, that I, I thought you were going to bring that up in some, the fact that you didn't, I think speaks to the, that the, it didn't really felt, especially meta. It felt strange that she just like for a moment looked directly in a camera. It was almost like a little haunting. This is not this type of movie. And yet we are getting this type of scene. It's feels alien, feels perverse. Steve, this was a hell of an appetizer. You ready for the main course? I think so. Yeah, man. Turkey curry, my favorite. <laughs> Have you ever had turkey curry? Not turkey curry. I've definitely had a chicken curry. I, I think it probably... Checks most of the same boxes. Pretty similar. We needn't belabor it, folks. Uh, we are going to talk about our two leading men in a segment we like to call Two Guys, a Girl, and a Turkey Curry Buffet. So, mercifully shortened to Turkey Curry is where we talk about <laughs> Cleve versus Darcy. We don't necessarily have to pick one. But we have to talk about both men, and we have to talk about uh, our, our, our main gal, Bridges' relationship with both men. And um, you, to, keep, to, to catch you up, first, mo- er, first book, decently high scores for both, but glowing reviews for Cleve. First mm-hmm. movie, not high scores at all, very mediocre scores for Darcy. Once again, golden god glow for Cleaver. Very, yeah, apex cleaver. I'm interested, Steve. I think all three main characters had a regression in this film. Mm-hmm. 
Where do you stand on our two main dudes? So Cleaver doesn't really show up. I mean, he he's not he's he's not in this movie nearly as much as he is in the first one. Um, so let's let's I guess we should first let's talk about the Bridget Darcy relationship. You know, we've mentioned it before. We've kind of talked about some of our qualms with it. I think right at the top when you mentioned I don't know if it was you said Sarah or you or the conversation you guys had, but that conflict at the lawyer ball was so toothless and dumb. And yes, you know, she puts her foot in her mouth like always, and then he doesn't stick up for her or whatever her complaint was, but. I don't know. He doesn't sit by her at the dinner. It's perplexing, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The, the stakes are so low. It ends with them exchanging I love yous, and he does that, like, weird fake-out marriage proposal that ends with this ski mini-break invitation, which I'm just thankful that the phrase mini-break was able to be uttered at least one more time. That, that was... did put a smile on my face. <laughs> if you want to talk about meta, maybe that's a reference at how many times they use the words mini break in the book. I don't know. You know <laughs> we can argue about that some other time. But um, the pregnancy fight scare, or the, I'm sorry, the pregnancy scare fight seemed much more legitimate. Yeah. Yeah, it felt, it felt pretty organic, felt pretty based in reality. Um, the, the issue being that uh, Mark Darcy has sort of this uh, privileged upper class, middle class, whatever you want to call it, uh, life planned out for his potential kid, send him to boarding school. This being a proxy for his entire sort of lightly conservative leaning kind of pompous, I guess, I guess approach. Yeah, to... stick up his ass is how she phrased it in that very scene. So yeah, I think you're, you could, you're well within your right to categorize him in that way. Well, Bridget... Is, is envisioning a much cuddlier, warmer, like normal folks type upbringing for her potential children, which um, Darcy eviscerates her with breastfeeding the child until he leaves for college or something along those lines. I loved that um, first takedown where he's of like new millennium parenting, where he's like, yes, <laughs> he's like they spend all day singing Yellow Submarine and practicing group masturbations. <laughs> Dude, it was he had like knives in both hands, just like fucking slashing. Where do you, where do you land on the Eaton versus a traditional schooling? Mm. Um, I think that. I am enough of a class trader to jump at the chance <laughs> to send my child to a massive earning and happiness potential increasing school. Uh, and then I would like have no expectations of their grades or their behavior. I'd be like, find as much time as you can for, for fun. But we're definitely sending you to this school because um, you're basically set for life afterwards. Right on. Smart move. Um, but yeah, I like the overall, like that scene a lot. I like how the excitement at first, like slowly erodes as they realize that, you know, like they're differing viewpoints mm. on child rearing and it ends kind of savagely. Like, yeah, they, she, you know, it's the, the test is negative and they're both kind of sarcastic about it, you know, like how disappointed they are. And I, I think that, I mean, there, and then there's that scene, I don't, there's not much to say about it, but where they go to her parents' house for lunch. Um, but the... The breakup scene, you know, she's insecure about Rebecca, which makes sense in the moment. Um, she's hung up on not getting a marriage proposal after eight weeks, which does not make sense at all. It's just absurd. Not in the moment, not outside the moment. Absurd and a little maddening. Um, <laughs> so this is where we're at with their relationship. I'm on the whole, there's like, a, you know, there's that, I like the pregnancy scare scene. I think the rest of it was like, 
confusing and irritating. I don't know where yeah. do you land. <clears throat> yeah, no, I think you've done it. You've done it exactly. I think um, you can draw a lot of parallels from the first movie because um, you know he and Daniel Cleaver are are, are switched. So in, in the first film, we get mostly Hugh Grant, and then um, sprinklings, of course, of Firth, but Firth comes on strong at the end. Uh, here, we, we don't get much Cleaver at all until until the back half of the film. And unlike Hugh Grant in the first movie, who had about 13 scenes that were all charming and hilarious, oh, dude. Um, the fact that we have like one or two flecks of silver to, to point to for Firth's... Um, I mean, you know, it has to be said that Firth seems like a great partner. He He is supportive. I think Sarah said... He's too good for her about 30 times in the first 30 minutes of the film. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's, that's sort of beside the point when you when it, it's about enjoying the film and, and how much you're um, appreciating the performances on screen. And he was very, he was just as wooden as before and not in a way that I can even mount the specter of a defense to say, yes, but his character is supposed to be wooden, Steve, don't you see? I, I, it's just, it just wasn't very compelling. So let's move on to Cleaver. You know, he, he pops up at the very, like, so she sees him on TV initially. You know, he's got another, you know, we mentioned it before, but another person in this universe, just like, just throw him on television. Like, <laughs> no, just whatever. Yep. But okay, so what I want to talk about, though, the, the real Cleaver intro was actually pretty good, where he's like sitting in the office in the desk chair facing the other way, and then he swings around like a Bond villain to reveal himself. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, it was good. Like completely like keeps driving the nail in about her not knowing where Germany is. Right. Just... That was like a decent bit. Like if that, if that yeah. was like the dumbest thing that happened in this movie, like that would have been a good sign. Not that that was particularly dumb, but, you know, like, it was just kind of, like, needless and, like, not, like, Goofy. super funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no, like, they're... Anyway, so, th- I just this just needs to be said. Grant's hair just bummed me out in this movie. I, give me that cut <laughs> that he made famous. Why is... Why, why fuck with perfection? I don't know. <laughs> I know it's the... Now we're getting into, like, the, the mid-2000s or whatever, whereas before we were in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, but... That, that bummed me out. Um, th- I actually laughed when Grant goes, New York, the big juicy apple. There's <laughs> like, <laughs> like that weird, like sexual tinge to his travel show. Like I, I found like amusing. Um, and then, you know, like, I don't know, he, he makes some like derogatory comments about interior designers in Italy, but whatever. <laughs> But I don't know. So I think it's tough. You know, he's working at a place of uh, he's working at a disadvantage in this movie because at this point he's a known cad. Right. Like there is no Mm. reason whatsoever to find him charming or like root for him at all. So I think that that makes it difficult. You know, there's that like really gross part at the end where he's trying to like bed her and then the prostitute comes over. And then he's still like kind of like, well, I'm I'm up for it if you are, like kind of wink, wink. That and... actually saved it a little bit for me because it was like so over the top. Um, but you're right in general. Not only is his character shortchanged in the writing department a little bit compared to how many like solid platinum one-liners he had in the first movie, but like he's also they kind of gave him like a pathetic version. In the first one, he acted pathetically but he actually wasn't very pathetic at all he he was almost like you 
you almost felt like a real identifiable sympathy for him when, he, despite his like pretty real feelings for Bridget, he was ultimately a narcissist and sabotaged his own chances at happiness. And you're like, his his final speech was was quite good. I thought this one he's like, oh, I'm going to therapy for sex addiction. That that's supposed to be his like saving thread. Don't really buy it. He does. He is charming with the poetry and the the references that like the astrology that he knows. Yeah, that the stargazing scene I thought was pretty good, or at least the way he played that scene. Like I like I really like the part where they're walking. They're they just had they're done getting or having dinner or whatever. They're walking back up from um, like the the pier, and he's like obviously trying to get her to come over, but he's not being so forward about it. He's kind of waiting. You know, she asks about the Big Dipper and then he like is able to respond to it. And that that's that's kind of my favorite kind of grant there. It's like very understated, but, he, you know, he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. movie, I mean, you know, he's much, much better in the first movie. But, um, you know, that's kind of like I think that his that's his shining moment there. But I really so the, the I wanted to mention this. But so there's that line where they're fighting in the fountain and he's talking about he was going to have sex with like a beautiful Thai woman that turned out to be a gorgeous Thai boy. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yes. I mean, that his delivery is kind of good, I thought, but yikes. That is dude, just. So that, sucks, I didn't even, that's sucks. not even why I, wanted, why I wanted to bring it up. At that moment, I was like, dude, if this was made nowadays or like even like five years ago, that definitely would have had like a, you know, like a cutaway, like a family style, like cutaway to family guy style cutaway to like him actually like finding out that she's a man and like everybody has a big laugh. Like I felt that was like very like 40 year old virgin type of humor. Yeah. Graciously were spared of that. But for some reason that was just like all I could think about at that moment. Yeah. Not of not again, not a tasteful way to make, you know, a a transgender, uncertainly gendered person, the butt of the joke, but terrible. Yes, not 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 in good taste or social grace, but Grant, he's such a fiend. He's such a devil. He slightly gets away with it, but yeah, he's he's just he's more of the raw and raunchy side of his character and less of the like you hate to love him and you love to hate him from the first movie. Yeah, he's like he's he's like a naughty child in the first movie. You know, <laughs> like you can't you can't help him, you can't like stay mad at him. But yeah, in this movie he's just kind of like a gross old man. Or not a yeah. gross middle-aged man. <laughs> that's that's we should be careful with, with I know, I'm I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> He's probably younger in that movie than I am right now. <laughs> I don't think quite, but we're getting to that point. Um yeah, I think all in all, I'm not going back to the buffet. One helping's enough for both these men. Do still give the edge narrowly to to Cleaver. All in all, uh, I think I think Zellweger regressed the least, but I was I was not impressed with anyone's performance particularly. No, not really any standouts, unfortunately. And you know, Rebecca, you know she. She ingratiated herself, but she wasn't on screen and really didn't have enough to do to really like stand out. Um, but yeah, no, Zellweger holding steady for sure, but too much, too many pratfalls for me to give her, especially high marks compared to the first movie. I wanted to point this out. You know, there, there's a lot made about her appearance, you know, like weight wise and stuff. I think it's a little gross for like a 30 year old dude on a podcast talking about 
you know, a woman's appearance. But one of the reviews I read um, written in The Guardian, written by an Englishman, mentions that so he's like yeah that's been made about her weight whatever but he's like i want to talk about how gracious they are about not making fun of british people's teeth in this movie like her teeth (laughs) are really nice and he's like what's really british about her though is her skin like a lot of like american you know like movie stars they have like a particular glow to them he's like you should pay attention to like the her skin and her face like it looks especially like weather beaten as though she actually lives in london or england and i after I read that, I was like, huh, that's like a good observation. That's not as like so obvious um, when you think about Bridget Jones or like particular things that you think about. And I mean, her cleavage is on blast in this movie in a big way. It's one thing I definitely noticed watching it, but um, I don't know. Front I just, well, I, she's I, often drenched. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to point that out because I found that interesting. That Yeah, she, she definitely does seem English. Not that I've spent like a lot of time around English people, but... You know, I think that that actually stages the a, a wrap up about the film pretty well for me. Yeah, those little details and the fact that Zellweger is still with you know maxing out her her with both arms, just flexed, trying to hold the movie together with a with a very you know as authentic as it could possibly be performance given the circumstances. But like that was the sort of stuff that was icing on a pretty good cake in the first movie. That made me go, yeah, I can see why this is, this stands the test of time. Little details like that, like little splotchy uh, red nose because of the cold facial complexion, that is just washed away in four dozen lampoonish scenes that that just like rob this film of any nuance that would be necessary to appreciate that sort of thing. Totally, that's really well put, Steve. Any last thoughts? Any last thoughts before we we put this strange, <laughs> fun, <laughs> fascinating chapter of our friendship to to at least semi permanent rest? Um, no, I think I think I've said everything I have to say about it. I think that yeah, my big my big big takeaway is this movie plays a lot different watching it with somebody who's like amped up to make fun of it as opposed to like watching it by yourself. Nevertheless, there is still a lot to make fun of when you're in a solo viewing. But like, yeah, if you if you're in the mood to flame, watch it with a friend who like feels the same way. Excellent advice, Steve. If you can't find a friend, watch it while you're listening to us. Listener, I think this episode <laughs> will be very near the, the feature length runtime of the film. So uh, it's a dark side of the moon wizard Voss type scenario. <laughs> Just hit play. <laughs> Steve. The final installment of the film series is coming up next. Of course, we skip the third book. We do not get a film, uh, Mad About a Boy. But we do get the final book transliterated to the screen, Bridget Jones' Baby. We saw this in theaters the week it came out, uh, back when it did come out. What are you looking forward to when we talk about it next week? Yeah, so one movie left in this mini season, uh, Bridget Jones' Baby. Hugh Grant is not on the poster. He's not billed anywhere. He's truly sodded it up with Bridget. But my question is, will he make a cameo in the third movie? Will Hugh Grant make it on screen in Bridget Jones 3? <laughs> Contentious bit of lore teased <laughs> there, Steve. Uh, I am very excited to see how old the baby is when they presume that it is born are we gonna get like one of those 
three three month old stage babies or is it going to be like a, nearly a toddler when oh yeah, like the physical size of the baby <laughs> yeah yeah i i'm guessing given the carelessness of detail in the second movie that we're probably going to see a fully formed five-year-old it's a safe bet yeah exactly um steve thanks again for an excellent episode we bring season two the short season two home next time Listeners, until then, take it till you make it. <laughs> <laughs>